Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. This is Issues 2020. I'm Steve McIntosh. Our guest is Diana Shun, Director of the Child Advocacy Center of Sedgwick County. Welcome to Issues 2020. Nice to have you with us. Thank you. Glad to be here. April is Abuse Awareness Month. Uh, tell us about the center, uh, the Advocacy Center. How long have you been around? The Advocacy Center has been in place since 2008, and we were designed to be able to not duplicate services that are in the community, but to rather more efficiently use those and then fill the gaps of the services that might still be needed to be able to help protect children, uh, but also provide them with support services that they need. So what is the center's mission then? Do you have a mission statement, Susan? Sure, we do have a mission statement, but our mission in essence is to be able to really work with all of our community agencies to be able to serve the children that we need. Our primary areas that we focus on are fourfold. Um, There would be the advocacy component, therapy, case coordination, and then community education. So those are the areas that we really focus on. Uh, How is the center funded? The center has a variety of different uh, funding sources. We have over 20 different funding sources at any given time. So we do receive uh, a significant amount of money through our fundraising efforts and private donations, corporate donations. But we also have some state, city, and county funding and some federal funding as well. I see this uh, in a lot of uh, organizations such as yours trying to do civic good at that they're funded in, in various uh, various ways or from a number of sources. And uh, it seems like uh, people want to help. People in this community are good about that. Uh, people in this community are uh, exceptionally good at really rallying around support systems that are needed for the community, recognizing when there's a significant uh, uh, gap in the services that are needed, and then just coming to coming to action when they're needed. Can you describe your facilities for us? I mean, yeah, not a lot of buildings. Or are you one place? Tell us about that. Yeah, um, we started out originally in 2008 in the basement of the state office building, which is where also the exploited and missing child unit was located at that time. Uh, the exploited and missing child unit is a three-way partnership that started in 1985. Uh, with the Wichita Police Department, Cedric County Sheriff's Office, and the Department for Children and Families doing joint investigations for child abuse. And so we were in that facility until almost four years ago now. Um, We moved into a renovated uh, former Lincoln Elementary School building and have been located there ever since. So we've been able to 
merge with several other organizations. We have 10 different agencies that are represented within the facility. So under normal circumstances, we would be about 60 people in the building from 10 different agencies working uh, with our other primary partners in the community, the medical component, um, via Christy Wesley and KU Pediatrics. Um, but um, obviously the, those numbers change, go up and down, and depending on staffing and life situations. So you ha- uh, You're talking about the, the building you were talking about, the original. Was that the, the former Macy's building? Um, the original one, yes, yeah, that, when we were in the state old, office building. For mm-hmm. us older folks, we, <laughs> we know where that is. Sure. What was, was there something, an event or anything in the year 2008 that, that motivated this to happen, or was it just something that, that came about? In 2006, we really took a look at would um, there be a difference in Cedric County in our response to child abuse if we were to start a child advocacy center. And at that time, we formed... Um, just kind of a a search committee to be able to get together and determine whether that was really something that would be beneficial in the community. And so we started working from there, touring other child advocacy centers across the nation. And ultimately, the decision was to go ahead and start the child advocacy center. And interestingly enough, then shortly after we started in 2008 was when we also experienced those eight child fatalities related to child abuse. So those were kind of coincidental in time frame, but I think it also motivated us to recognize that we really could play a significant part in how children are handled when they first come in from an investigation standpoint, the services that they are offered, and the support that continues after that investigation is completed. Has your work been impacted by the virus pandemic? It has. Um, Obviously, our staffing has significantly changed. We are doing therapy now via telemedicine, and so that's a new endeavor for us to not have our clients directly in front of of the therapist. Um, Obviously, our staffing for our advocacy program is down to as minimal as we can possibly have it, depending on the number of cases that are coming in. Um, Our community education has almost uh, completely come to a standstill since we're not gathering in large numbers. We can continue to do some education in different ways, but um, that really has taken a different turn for us. And then obviously our uh, we do weekly meetings uh, for difficult cases that are coming in and they're uh, gathered together as a multidisciplinary team to be able to review those cases. And we're starting to do those um, via Zoom now so that we can still gather with one another, 15 to 20 different folks within the community, but that we're not all in the same room and that we're just merging together um, via uh, teleconferencing instead. So it has significantly changed just from a process standpoint. Um, but other things are also ultimately very concerning in regards to the virus, and that would just be that really um, recognizing that children are at risk when they're in situations where there's lots of social isolation, uh, where there's a lack of social support, Uh, where children may or may not have access to food. And the big ones, of course, are the extreme stress that is already within a family in this kind of a situation, 
whether that be financial, babysitting, um, you know, kids are not in school any longer. Uh, we don't really have that second set of eyes on children through our school systems or through the community members. And so we know from history that that is a area of concern, and it is not uncommon that those numbers can go up because of that. Well, wow. All right. How many, uh, how many children or families do you help in a year, Diana? We serve right now about 2,500 children a year, and then we have additional family members on top of that, about another 500 over, uh, over in addition to that as well. Okay. Give us a description, if you will, kind of a, uh, a description of how your system works. How do, you, how do you find abused children, and then what happens to them? Sure. Children are, um, a report is made of child abuse when there is a concern, and that report goes to either law enforcement or to the Department for Children and Families. And when those reports are made, then they are immediately in the Cedric County area um, funneled to the Exploited and Missing Child Unit. And EMCU will then schedule a interview for the family to come in. And it's at that time then that our advocate will meet with the family when they first arrive. They'll get them settled into a room, try to answer immediate questions that they may have, provide any support that they need to provide at that point, and then really be able to help assess what additional services and support they're going to need when they leave the facility as well. So it's really um, that initial contact comes because someone has made a report. And that report can come from anyone, anyone in the community. It can come from a family member. Uh, Obviously, we have mandatory reporters throughout the community, and that can be anyone essentially that carries a license. So whether that's a healthcare provider or a school teacher or a host of, you know, therapists and other kinds of folks in the community are all considered to be mandatory reporters. And so those reports come from all different sources, but they're coming in through law enforcement or through DCF. And that's how those uh, investigations are initially um, brought to light. And then the investigations, uh, are, I imagine, are pretty thorough going into everything that you think is happening there, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's a lot of folks that are oftentimes need to be interviewed and worked with throughout that process of the investigation. And EMCU does a fabulous job with really trying to identify who are ancillary folks who may have additional information about that circumstance and trying to get those uh, pieces all connected together to be able to really put together a case that never um, puts a child in a situation where it's a child standing alone um, making statements that aren't uh, supported uh, from other avenues through that investigation process. So then the child is involved or gets be it gets into your system. Uh, does that child always, sometimes, be will they be taken out of the family? Uh, how do you deal with that? Yeah, that's a great question. The largest majority of our cases, uh, children are not removed from the home. Uh, about 10% of our cases, children are taken into police protective custody because there isn't a safe person that is identified immediately to be able to release them too. And in those cases, even a smaller percentage of those then end up being removed from the home. So um, although those are certainly necessary cases and circumstances to work with, oftentimes we can find supportive family members 
that are willing to protect the child. Um, about oh, 80% or more of our cases, the offender is someone who lives in the home or is well known to the family. And so recognizing when there is a family member who is willing and capable of supporting the child is part of that process that DCF really focuses on to be able to identify and be able to get a safety plan in place. You're listening to Issues 2020 on the Intercom radio stations, and our guest is Diana Shun, Director of the Child Advocacy Center of Sedgwick County. Diana, tell us, uh, uh, tell us about your medical evaluations. What's that all about? Yeah, there's different kinds of medical evaluations that need to take place. And obviously those that are considered to be acute in nature or something that's just recently happened um, is one set of those. And then something that's happened a longer time ago um, is kind of the other set. So any of our acute evaluations are examinations that we would anticipate would go immediately to the hospital. And that could be anything from a sexual abuse evaluation to head trauma, abdominal trauma, or broken bones. Um, Obviously, we want those kids to be seen immediately and to be uh, cared for in in whatever manner they need to to be able to stabilize them if they're unstable at that time or to be able to provide the services that they need uh, to move forward from there. And then the uh, non-acute, those cases that aren't Uh, something that immediately happened uh, a short time ago are the other kinds of evaluations. And those are oftentimes our sexual abuse evaluations as well. Uh, So sexual abuse where the last exposure has been maybe a a week or longer ago are those types of cases that will be scheduled to be able to go in to see the medical provider looking uh, looking certainly for healed trauma that might be present, but oftentimes just answering questions about Uh, the client's body and what they should expect and um, questions that might just come up through that process of um, uh, the investigation related to the the abuse. And then other times in the physical abuse situation, uh, the medical provision can also be looking for healed kinds of trauma that might be present, whether that's a healing broken bone or some other kinds of healing trauma. So what about the mental health of these kids? You're talking about the, the, the medical, physical history. What about the mental health of these youngsters? Yeah, the mental health is absolutely essential. Um, we are fortunate to be able to have six of our own therapists at the Child Advocacy Center, which certainly with the volume of kids that we see, that is not capable of being able to serve everyone. So we have wonderful community partners as well that we can refer to. But our advocates and our therapists meet on a <clears throat> weekly basis to be able to assess what kind of referral they might need at that time. Our focus really from an internal therapy standpoint uh, really looks at families that are in a financial challenge. They maybe don't have money to be able to pay a copay or they don't even have insurance. Those are the cases that we take because we're able to provide therapy free of charge Uh, All of our services are free of charge, but we're able to be able to provide therapy free of charge for those families as well. And then additional referrals are made out into the community. But without a doubt, individual therapy is the key to being able to see um, successful outcomes. And family therapy is equally as important. The child can't just be hearing messages from the therapist one hour a week um, to be able to really implement 
um, that change. And so we really rely on family members being ex- uh, extremely involved and supportive as well. Tell us about the legal aspects of your work, Diana. We are fortunate as well to have a representative from the district attorney's office in our facility, and that person can do a host of different kinds of things to be able to assist in case consultation, uh, preparation for court, trying the actual cases themselves, uh, just being able to provide information and education to our staff, as well as then um, any additional kinds of things that come up from a legal perspective, whether that's needing search warrants or affidavits and those kinds of things. So from a legal perspective, our staff in particular will get involved uh, from a therapy standpoint, probably the most often when a child is ready to uh, testify, they will work with that child to be able to just provide them with the tools that they need to be able to possibly stay calm on the on the stand, to be able to recognize what it will be like for them to face their offender, um, giving them just strengthening tools and <clears throat> preparing them in that manner to be able to go into court. Tell us about uh, educational efforts, uh, what you're doing, and I, I imagine this is something that's constantly going on to educate uh, the public about this problem and and how big a problem it is? Education is certainly the key. Um, we know that as people become aware that our likelihood of them being comfortable in making a child abuse report uh, significantly increases. So part of our education efforts is really helping folks to identify what signs and symptoms might they be concerned about and when should they make a report and educating them on what does the reporting process look like. And if you make a report, what does that mean? What should you expect to be able to see? Um, And just sometimes understanding the system itself uh, helps with that process. Uh, I think our education also really focuses on how we as a community can make an impact on the safety of children and recognizing that we as adults are the ones that are responsible for the safety for children. And I think sometimes that's just an empowerment that we need to hear as adults that we ultimately are the ones that make the difference. I oftentimes hear people say, well, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong and I don't want to get this person into trouble? I don't want to falsely, you know, claim, make a claim against someone And our response to that would be, you've got a gut feeling that something is not right. Um, We should follow that gut feeling, number one. But number two, allow the system to be able to determine if something is or isn't going on. Because the what if really is, what if the abuse has been going on and we do nothing about it? So we really want to empower people to be able to recognize when it is that they need to make a report and how that looks and to maybe take a little bit of that fear factor of the unknown out of that scenario and empower people to be involved in child safety, that it doesn't have to just be my child. It can be your child and my neighbor's child and anyone else that we come into contact with. We have the opportunity to keep our eyes and ears open. Are there signs that we can look for that uh, may, that a child might be uh, being abused? Sure. Um, you know, there's a lot of changes of behavior that we see in relation to children when there's abusive scenarios going on. And, and with that being said, when the abuse is so normal in their life, 
those changes may be more difficult to be able to recognize. But certainly, um, you know, the real obvious kinds of things that we see are, you know, external body bruising. Uh, there are certain bruises on the body, such as bruising to the head, that nearly hap- never happens from an accidental situation. Foreheads, yes. Behind the ears, no. Um, and so when we see, you know, bruising in those areas behind the ears and around the, the cheeks and those kinds of things, things that aren't the bony prominences of where we fall and hit, we need to be concerned about that child uh, in a different manner. And certainly when we're seeing, you know, broken bones that are not explainable and those kinds of things as well. From a sexual abuse standpoint, we might see, um, you know, difficulty sitting, uh, changes in eating behavior, um, such as they um, they accommodate for their stress in, in similar ways that adults do. Maybe some people eat more, some people eat less. Uh, it just really depends on what that stress factor is to the child, and that often indicates kind of the different changes that we will expect to see. Fearful of uh, familiar places, uh, they don't want to go uh, where they used to go and they really enjoy going. Um, they just, again, a lot of it is changes in behavior, and we just have to listen and be willing to ask questions if we have a concern in relation to that. But recognize that the child has to trust that adult before they're going to disclose. So just because there isn't an initial outcry by the child Um, there's a lot of pressures that are put on them, particularly when it's their primary caregiver that's causing the abuse. And so we just really, again, encourage folks to be aware of situations that are of concern and that it's okay to be able to ask other people, you know, have you seen this change as well? Is this something you're concerned about? Uh, But ultimately, if you have a concern, we always encourage people to call 911 to get a welfare check immediately and then DCF uh, to initiate their side of the investigation as well. That was my next question. But what what should we do if we suspect child abuse? 911, the first call, you think, then? Yeah, 911 initiates that immediate response. Um, DCF's response is going to be uh, Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, and then assigned typically the next day, just depending on when that report comes in. So if we're concerned about an immediate dangerous situation, we really need to make sure that we're initiating that call to 911 as well. How can uh, the DCF hotline is the one eight hundred nine two two five three three zero. Okay, got that. Yeah. How can somebody get involved in the work that you're doing? And maybe a volunteer, maybe something like that. Absolutely, we love to have volunteers. Um, our volunteer opportunities at the moment with the, the COVID nineteen change significantly, but um, there are volunteer applications on our website, and that's uh, info at cacscansas dot org. Um, and we would love to see people just take a look at um, our website and be able to learn a little bit more about what volunteer opportunities are there. Do you have fundraisers? We do. We have two main fundraisers, and then we have some additional ones as well. Um, Our first one coming up, should it be (laughs) able to be held, we are the recipients of um, the uh, primary beneficiary of the Gladiator Dash, um, and so that one is, is the first one coming up. And then we have a golf tournament. And then in November is when we traditionally have our Heroes Gala. All right. So uh, what, what motivates you personally, Diana? What motivates Shun? me? Yeah. Gosh, that's What motivates a great you question. to do this work? Yeah. Yeah. I think that 
we have the opportunity to see children come in in a really bad space, and we have the opportunity to see them leave uh, feeling empowered, uh, starting that healing process, and most importantly, ending the abuse that their situation that they're in. Um, that doesn't always happen, and that's the extremely unfortunate part to that, but those are the cases that keep us pushing forward, too, to know that we have more to do. We have uh, more education to be able to provide, and we have the importance of just continuing to be out there and uh, trying to prevent abuse from happening, but also recognizing it when it does. All right. Well, thanks for spending some time with us this morning. We appreciate it. And uh, good luck in all the good work you're doing there in our community, Diana. Thanks again for being with us. Our uh, guest, Diana Shun, Director of the Child Advocacy Center of Sedgwick County. That's all for this edition of Issues 2020. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening. I'm Steve McIntosh. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.